1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I'm speaking with Michelle Goodwin, author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood, published by Cambridge University Press earlier this year. Michelle Goodwin is an author, advocate, professor and social commentator. She's a chancellors professor at the University of California. She's an elected member of the American Law Institute and elected fellow of both the American Bar Foundation and the Hastings Center. Her commentary has appeared widely, including in the New York Times, the LA Times, Politico, Forbes, Miss Magazine and Huffington Post. She's also a prolific scholar who's published widely. She's written two previous books, including Black Markets The Supply and Demand of Body Parts and Baby Markets, Money and New Politics of Creating Families. Today, I'm going to speak to her about her latest book, Policing the Womb. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Now, just to get started, can you tell me a little bit how you came to write Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood?
2: This book comes about out of about a decade's worth of research, but the the earliest thoughts about it were probably even 10 years before I began writing it. I began to notice that there were women being criminalized and punished because of the conduct, um, their conduct during pregnancy. And this just simply didn't hold up. Much of it was unconstitutional invasions of privacy. And I noticed overwhelmingly these women were poor and they were often African-Americans. And what I mean by example are cases where a woman would have a miscarriage or a stillbirth and she would be charged with murder. And pushed into taking a plea deal that could be 10 years or 20 years. Or women who were arrested while giving birth, shackled and chained, uh, pushed out of hospitals, all because they had admitted to their doctor that they had a drug dependency. And what was notable in so many of these cases were the direct differences in terms of how women of color were treated by their medical providers versus white women. That is to say, at some of the very hospitals where uh, black women were targeted by their nurses and doctors because of their drug usage, nurses and doctors knowing about their white patients' drug usage did nothing. And in some instances, when they might have um, contacted police or law enforcement regarding a white patient... They might write something like lives with Negro boyfriend. So these were deeply racialized, unconstitutional targeting of women, particularly vulnerable women. And that really concerned me. And I had hoped that people who write about criminal law might have paid more attention to it or people who were writing more about uh, pregnancy and reproductive rights might have paid attention to it. At the time, I was writing about biotechnology in the law and about assisted reproductive technology. But I grew so concerned about this because there was so little taking place in this space that I thought it was really important to elevate these concerns.
1: I think those, those themes really come through in your book. You know, it is really strong on the points of intersectional discrimination especially in relation to women of colour, and you also write a lot about poor women being targets of hyper-policing and also criminalisation of pregnancy and motherhood and, you know, all of the parts that go with that, um, women's reproductive health. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk more specifically about some of the difficulties and the challenges faced by women of colour and poor women in some of these cases.
2: Well, it's important to think about this within its historical framework and trappings, and then to talk about the modern day iterations. We do no justice to talking about reproductive health rights and justice if we didn't acknowledge that the very early vestiges of robbing women of their reproductive independence, privacy, and autonomy happened during slavery, where Black women were sexually assaulted, raped, forced into production, and then their children stolen from them and made property. These women were made property. In fact, it's really just so unfathomable that a person could give birth and have no rights associated with the child that she is birthed because that child is considered property. She's considered property. Um, I've read that some of the most frightful days, the the most challenging and terrifying days were the auction days that took place on plantations, because those were days where mothers could not protect their children from the auction block. And that for means of profit making, or retribution, or whatever, um, their children could be literally just stolen from them, taken from them, and then and then sold off. So those early iterations are important and how they morph into the post-slavery, post-Reconstruction era. I've read archives from formerly enslaved persons who wrote to the Freedmen's Bureau in the United States, pleading with them to get their children back because right after slavery in Southern states, they created all sorts of laws in order to try to reinstantiate slavery. And one of those laws was an apprentice law passed throughout various Southern states. And these apprenticeship laws basically provided that any random white man could determine on his own that a black parent was unfit and then take that child in front of a magistrate and essentially get custody over that child where that child then would become his or her apprentice But what's very interesting about these apprentice laws is that they weren't about helping children to learn crafts and trades such as how to be a cobbler, or how to be an architect. Instead, they were modern forms of slavery and these children could then become indentured to these people for 10, 20 or 30 years. What's fascinating about these letters then to these black parents to the Freedmen's Bureau is how they plead. They plead to get their children back, and can't the government do something to help them out? And then right after that, we get into a period of eugenics in the United States. The United States Supreme Court in 1927 upheld a Virginia law that provided for the forced sterilization of people who were considered morally or socially or mentally unfit. That law led to the indiscriminate imposition of sterilization, forced sterilization, on girls, on women throughout the state of Virginia. And when the law was challenged before the U.S. Supreme Court in 1927, it was upheld by the Supreme Court eight to one. Overwhelmingly, the United States Supreme Court upheld a Virginia eugenics law. And that law became the basis for what was adopted in Nazi Germany. After the United States upheld this law in 1927, in a case that had actually involved a poor white girl who had been raped by her employer's nephew, she became pregnant. And so she became a test case. Could the state of Virginia force her to be sterilized? And the US Supreme Court said, well, yes, it could. Uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said that three generations of imbeciles are enough. He compared forced sterilization with vaccination, said that the power and authority that the state had to impose vaccination was broad enough to cover, quote, cutting the fallopian tubes. He said that it was better than for the offspring of people like Kerry to starve for their imbecility or to become criminals, the words of the court that society was better off by making sure that people like Carrie, who he considered manifestly unfit, would never reproduce. In the aftermath of that, there were tens of thousands of Americans who were forcibly sterilized. Poor white people, indigenous women, black women, and children. You know, there are records of young kids as, as young as 10, 11, 12 years old who were coercively sterilized under these platforms. So that gives you the historical perspective, and the modern version of it is just as creepy, uh, just as inhumane, just as unconstitutional as I would say, and I'm happy to describe some of the contemporary cases if you want.
1: Yeah, no, please do, because I just reading it, I was just so shocked um, somewhere like the United States that this kind of thing is is not just that it went on with the part in the past but it's it's still you know there are still kind of it's going on in different forms somewhat So if you can elaborate yeah that'd be because i i just couldn't believe it as i was reading it i'd you know have to tell someone like can you believe this is still going on so yeah if you can
2: elaborate please Well, this is exactly why history is important, because these are not platforms that come out of thin air. So to make this connection, just think about this. In the United States, it wasn't just for a day or a few days or a week that a system of human bondage and slavery persisted. It wasn't something where people practiced it for a month and said, this is horrid. How in the world can we put metal shackles around a two or three-year-old's neck? How can we snatch a child nursing from its mother's breast and sell it off? But no, people were satisfied in doing that. Comparing these children to pigs and goats and chattel of the field, justifying it. And so when you think about an enterprise like that, that doesn't just last an hour or 24 hours or a day or seven days or a month or a year, but the years that flow into decades and the decades that flow into centuries with people making justifications as to why this woman does not deserve to be treated in a dignified way, why this woman lacks a moral capacity, why this woman lacks an intellectual capacity, why this woman needs no regard from the state or anyone else, why this woman, as the Supreme Court said in a very famous decision, Dred Scott v. Sanford, that black people were never intended to be citizens and that they were always meant to be property. Well, if you actually take from that, how the Supreme Court viewed not just Dred Scott, but he was fighting for the freedom of his two daughters and his wife, then should we be surprised by the contemporary efforts in these very same states that used to uphold slavery? I mean, if you look at it in states like Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, a number of these states, which are the former slave states, are states that have imposed conditions on women that disregard their humanity, privacy, and autonomy. So that you have in Texas, the case of Marlies Munoz. In her case, she was rotting. She was dead. She was brain dead. Her family wanted to take her off of life support, but she was pregnant. And the state of Texas said that so long as she was pregnant... They held control over her body, basically rendering her to the status of chattel. And even as her skin grew hard and the stench of her body uh, continued to proliferate through the air, the state would not give up. And it was finally after the family challenged the state in a case that went to the court's where a judge said that she could be removed from life support. But by this time, it was over two months that the family had been subjected to her body rotting, to not being able to treat her with dignity, all for the state wanting to take control and ownership over her uterus, over her body, and over the fetus that she was gestating. Or we could look in a state's such as, um, you know, North Carolina and South Carolina, where there have been women who've been prosecuted uh, because of having used drugs during their pregnancy. Um, And in these ways, you have states such as in the case involving Regina um, McKnight being prosecuted for having a stillbirth or in Mississippi with the case of Reenie Gibbs, a 15-year-old who had confided in her doctors that she had all sorts of struggles in her life. And by the very fact that she was pregnant at 15, there are statutory rape laws in that state. Now, whether she had consensual relations or not, the state legally finds that to be statutory rape. But the state had no problem with charging her with murder for her miscarriage, her stillbirth. Or you can look at um, Indiana, the case of Bebe Shui, a person who had wanted to be pregnant. But in the uh, days shortly before Christmas, um, some years ago, um, her boyfriend rejected her through money at her and told her that he was leaving her. So she attempted to kill herself. She survived. The fetus didn't. But in the state of Indiana, the prosecutor then sought to charge her with first degree murder in a case where there was no moral compassion whatsoever. It was very interesting is that the state also sought to use a law that was intended to protect pregnant women during uh, their pregnancies from domestic violence. These laws recognize a personhood in the fetus for the purpose of protecting women during their pregnancy. It turns out that when women are pregnant, they stand a risk, a significant risk of domestic violence. And it's very interesting to note the way in which states have sought to address that domestic violence, not as don't beat up women while they're pregnant, let's protect pregnant women, but instead there are some states that passed laws that are infanticide laws that go to the fetus. Well, what's very interesting in unpacking the Bebe Shui case is that if you look at other Indiana laws where they used these kind of infanticide laws to prosecute people, you find that in a case where a guy stabs his girlfriend multiple times um, in her pregnant womb, um, the prosecutor sought three years for that death in, in, in that case involving the fetus. In another case that involved a bank robber um, who uh, shot a woman twice in the uterus. She was carrying twins. A prosecutor saw it five years, how the value of the fetus was regarded in terms of criminal years. But it was very interesting in Bebe Shui's case where the prosecutor wanted her to be incarcerated for more than 40 years in the case of her attempting suicide. And so you see these gross disparities in terms of how prosecutors then target these pregnant women in ways that are deeply inhumane and that all seem to just, uh, for a desire of retribution um, against women. And so those are some of the ways, but there's so many others. Right now in California, there's a case where a prosecutor is, is seeking to prosecute a woman because of her conduct during pregnancy. And these are cases that you see in former slave states, but you also see in some non-slave states. And you also see doctors who threaten their patients with arrest if their patients refuse to have C-sections. Now, C-sections can be very dangerous for pregnancies. This may be one of the reasons why the United States has such a high maternal mortality rate because of the dramatic increase in cesarean sections, but many doctors find them to be convenient. They're the kinds of things where a doctor can schedule the delivery with precision. Once the patient in at 2 p.m. and the procedure is over by 3 p.m. and the doctor can go off to another patient or on vacation as has happened. But when there have been women who've resisted and have said, no, I don't want to do that. I actually want to have a natural birth and what have you. There have been women who've been threatened with arrest by their doctors. And so it's a very chilling time that deserves serious attention in the United States.
1: Yeah. From like what you've just said and also from your book, there does really seem to be uh, fetus rights being um, put, you know, at the forefront and women's rights and their bodily autonomy and what they want. Uh, come second um, and I think you know you just mentioned in terms of women being incarcerated and losing their bodily autonomy because of you know what they do during, um, during their pregnancy so can you talk more about how especially women of colour are over-policed and over-incarcerated in relation to you know uh, pregnancy and motherhood
2: well, this over-policing extends again from slavery itself, and it's really important to note that because, as I said earlier, these we're living within the vestiges of systems that were designed this way it's not as if these are wholly new designs. There are some new laws that are being crafted these days. That is, that's absolutely true. But the foundations of usurping women's authority vis-a-vis their own bodies, particularly women of color, is something that's been practiced with enormous precision in the United States. And so that history and legacy is apparent. In fact, the earliest vestiges of police badges and police forces were actually slave police forces, slave patrol forces. The very badges, the architecture of the American police badge actually extends from the slave patrol badges. And if you were to read the legislation that initiated these patrols, they were all about surveillance, right? So the very very laws that began during that time were about surveilling Black people and encroaching on any notions of privacy that they had. And so these contemporary forms of doing it, we've seen it in myriad types of ways, particularly when individuals expose themselves to um, to medical facilities, to state-run facilities. In fact, that's how a number of these women have been targeted because they went to medical providers that are, under, that are underwritten by the state. And so these women lack a certain sense of privacy. But what's very interesting is that even in instances where white women go to these same places, they're far less likely to be targeted. So there are studies that show that Black women are 10 times more likely to be reported by their doctors or nurses if they disclose that they use the drug during pregnancy. And it's important to note that the rate of drug usage during pregnancy is no different between white women and black women. In fact, white women have a little bit higher rate of drug usage, but they're far less likely to be reported. And so you have those instances that are actually apart from then the aggressive targeting of certain women, the perception that those women um, have something to hide or that those women Pose a risk to society because of their very sexuality, because they have sex, because they become pregnant. And we see this in various ways throughout the United States, related to pregnancy and also not related to pregnancy as well. And it's quite shameful to see what the end results of it happen to be, such as the shackling. The Medical University of South Carolina actually engaged in a platform whereby they recruited women into the hospital claiming that they wanted to help women who wanted prenatal care. And when black women came in to receive prenatal care, lo and behold, their medical records uh, were sequestered and then provided over to police and prosecutors and later used in prosecution against these women. And so there there are various periods in, in history where we've seen this and it's quite robust today. It's it's just so
1: shocking. Um, so just picking up on this point about um, how pregnancy is not just medicalized, but specifically, you write that um, doctors and nurses have become almost hospital teachers and police informants, um, and they have a role now in interpreting the law. Can you expand on this, please?
2: And this is what's problematic as well. In some instances, there may be doctors and nurses who hold hostile Racist, implicit, or explicit views about uh, Latinas, about Black women, about Indigenous women. And so they may, this may be exactly what they would wish to do uh, to inform on their patients, to be a, a kind of deputized agent of the state. But there are also pressures that are put on doctors who are ambivalent uh, ambivalent about these things, may have no prior leanings one way or the other. And they are also being coercively dragged into policing and surveilling their patients and disclosing private, confidential patient information. I mean, let's be clear from the earliest records with regard to doctors and their relationships to patients Fiduciary responsibility is critically important. And as part of that fiduciary responsibility, doctors hold in confidence then what their patients disclose to them. Doctors are expected to treat uh, to respect their patients autonomy and their dignity. Doctors are not supposed to do harm to their patients. Principles of bioethics go even further to say that doctors, in fact, should promote social justice within the relationship with their patient, and then also that informed consent is critically important. But you see all of those principles and values being violated and how doctors are now engaged in nurses in disclosing private patient information that does not actually help these women, one would have to ask the question, if there's a woman who used an illicit drug during her pregnancy and disclosed that to her doctor, is she better off being incarcerated and giving birth in a prison toilet or on a prison floor? How does that show any kind of care or honor to a fetus or a child? that the child is born in a prison toilet, that the child is born on a cold concrete floor behind bars. And so even the kinds of justifications that are held up to legitimize these actions really are prurient and they're really reckless. And they come from a space that's not healthy, a space that in 1942, the U.S. Supreme Court in Skinner v. Oklahoma would have said is actually a space of evil in that it targets unconstitutionally certain classes of people and a real concern is that once these platforms and practices start that they end up harming everybody i mean once you set a precedent in these spaces to harm black women then the harm can be for anybody so you think about the state of Wisconsin. At the height of the U.S. drug war, and really we're still in it, there was a significant campaign around crystallized cocaine known as crack. There were ways in which legislators specifically and in in ways that were just plain out racist distinguished crystallized cocaine from powder cocaine. None of this was based on any science, but it did drive legislators to make quite significant distinctions in criminal law based on whether one was caught with five kilos of cocaine versus a gram of crystallized cocaine. That gram of crystallized cocaine was perceived as far more dangerous and the person who had it, as far more dangerous than the person driving around with kilos of powdered cocaine in his trunk. This was racialized because in the United States, it was known at the time that wealthier white people were more likely to use powdered cocaine than. Than uh, black people were. White people used both powdered cocaine and crystallized cocaine, but the surveillance was heavily about black people who used crystallized cocaine or crack. And there were stereotypes that were engendered in the news and re- various forms of reporting and so forth that these were people who w- were dangerous to society. And any child born from a woman who used crystallized cocaine during the pregnancy, it was thought that these children were irredeemable. These children were so-called part of a brave new world. They would be uneducable and so forth. None of these things were ever said about the children born of white people who used prescription medications or who used powdered cocaine or who used crack. It created huge hysteria. Well, in the wake of this, there were states that then passed additional laws laws like Wisconsin's uh, euphemistically called crack baby mama's law. And this law provided broad scale leverage for any medical provider to signal to the state that this woman who had used this drug or any drug um, could be incarcerated against her will until the state thought that she should no longer be incarcerated. So what this basically meant is that a woman could go in on a prenatal visit disclose medical information to a practitioner and then have her house surrounded by police and then taken into a place where she would be detained a week, two weeks or months. Well, the fact that these laws still exist means that just a few years ago, Alicia Beltran a woman who is not black, not Latino, white woman who was doing quite well, had a great job, good house and disclosed to her medical providers that she was really happy about her state in life because at a previous time in her life, she had had some addiction to painkillers, which is not unusual, as we've heard uh, recently through various studies. Well, in this instance, because this law still existed, uh, authorities were alerted. Uh, They surrounded her house, they took her in, a a lawyer was provided for her fetus, but not for her. And she was incarcerated in the state of Wisconsin for more than 70 days. And of course, after she was released, this meant that she had fragile housing, um, no job, and so forth. And so, one of the dangers in this space of targeting. Black women and women of color in these pernicious, racist ways is that, you know, they just simply are the canaries in the coal mine. Later on, these very same laws can be used against white women.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Yeah, um, and you, you also give examples of um, white women, and especially um, both for black and white women, but talking about incarceration for non-violent offenders like for example um one of the examples you give is of Shanisha taylor she was a single mom and arrested for leaving her two kids in a parked car while attending a job interview um and she, you know you just mentioned how the media was somewhat complicit in you know creating false impressions of what was going on in this um over particularly of black women um so you know she was publicly shamed but then When she was finally sentenced, she was granted 18 years of supervised probation with her two children. Now, you know, like, just to understand for the listeners, can you can you talk about is this sort of negligent parenting? Or is there something more going on? Because it, you know, it does seem like there is more. And can you
2: talk about also how her case? Yeah. So one of the things that's no, no worries. One of the things that we see it's happening is this hyper policing of parents hyper policing of women generally. And we'd have to you know think about what explains this hyper policing? Well, there are things that are difficult, I think for us to reconcile but that are right in front of us. We come out of a history of state laws and also courts being very hostile to the independence of women. Right. So there's a time in this country where the state has no problem for enforcing an abortion on a woman or forcing her sterilization. Clearly, the state does not have high regard for the fetus. This high regard for the fetus comes about when women finally gain independence. Women are finally able to attain education. Women are competing for the jobs that men are competing for. And then suddenly you see a number of platforms that then challenge Uh, women's ability to be in these spaces. And one of the biggest ways of challenging that is through her uterus, right? It is going after the fetus and now holding the fetus in high regard when the state has never done that and the state doesn't do it outside of her pregnancy, right? So the state before before Roe v. Wade never seemed to have any kind of regard per se about the fetus, especially in an era of eugenics, which didn't just take place in the 1920s. The United States continued to engage in the forced or coerced sterilization of women up and through the 1970s. And in some instances, it still occurs. In fact, just today, there was a report from a whistleblower that the United States has been doing this Uh, with women who are detained in immigration centers, that there are women who have been forced to be sterilized. I imagine that will make very significant news in the coming weeks. And so this kind of regard for the fetus comes about in a very strategic way. It's used as a proxy to basically undermine women's independence altogether, because there are no valid uh, health or safety, or economic reasons to engage in the kind of criminal policing that the state does of pregnant women. For example, if the state is really concerned about women who struggle with drug addiction, well, we know that prisons are not the best place to handle that at all. And these women are non-violent offenders, two-thirds of them, right? So we know that prison and jail incarceration leads to high rates of recidivism. And in fact, as one prosecutor informed me when I was interviewing prosecutors for the book, that, you know, behind bars, it's a candy store of drugs that a woman has access to. So if you're trying to help a woman with her drug addiction, the last place that you want to send her is to a place of incarceration. That does not help her. The second thing is that we know that these things don't actually help children. Kristen Turney, who's a sociologist who teaches at the University of California, Irvine, does research on children of incarcerated parents. And what her research has found is that children of incarcerated parents fare worse health-wise, physically, and also mentally than children who've experienced a, a parent's death or divorce. So empirically, we know that targeting these women with incarceration actually doesn't help the women and their health and safety. It doesn't help the children who end up traumatized and having a very difficult time. It doesn't help taxpayers because taxpayers are then responsible for significant Uh, Debts associated with our system of mass incarceration in the United States. And it doesn't help society. When women are removed from their children and from their communities, there are whole communities, caregiving systems that just simply shut down. And so none of this really makes sense. Except if we think about this as just simply punishing women and particularly punishing poor women. Because let's be clear if the state is really concerned about women and their poor women and their illicit drug use, then the state is carving out exceptions because the state is not concerned then about wealthier women. And their prescription drug use. If you actually look at the toxicology of these drugs, they're not far different. It's just that poor women don't have doctors. They don't get prescriptions. And sometimes the drugs that they get are cut with a variety of things. Some, some of it may be innocuous, um, such as baking powder or baking soda. And some of it can be absolutely dangerous. But here's the thing that we know. We know that Oxycontin is dangerous. We know that Demerol can be dangerous. Any prescription medication that's not taken in the ways prescribed can be dangerous and can be dangerous even if they're taken in the way prescribed. But here's what research shows us. It's the following. It's that the wealthier a person is, the more educated that she happens to be and white, the more likely that she's being prescribed very heavy medications, prescription medications during her pregnancy, and that it's not just one drug that she's taking during her pregnancy, but multiple drugs that she's being prescribed during her pregnancy. Now, this is not in any way to um, to demean or make targets of those women. The, what we see is that pregnancy can be very difficult, and doctors are trying to help their patients during their pregnancies. But it is very clear the distinction then that the state carves out between a woman who might be poor and a woman who is wealthier. And so much of it makes no real scientific sense. But what we still see are vestiges of classism and racism and a disdain for women. And I I should say, too, given that we were just talking about crystallized cocaine, Mm. which is that you know, it be- this terminology of the crack mom and the crack baby proliferated during the 1980s and into the 1990s. And years later, what research showed and what some doctors were trying to express during that time, which is that it was all a hoax, right? It is not to suggest that anybody should be using whatever drugs during their pregnancy, but the ways in which prosecutors targeted these women and demean their children, suggesting that these children would be uneducable, that these would be children who would be uncontrollable in the classroom, that these would be children who would be bringing guns and knives into the classroom and threatening their teachers. It was not true. And the research of Dr. Hallam Hurt and Claire Coles they their their research showed this as early as the 1980s and the 90s but their research was largely ignored and i interviewed them for the book and they told me how they were put on blacklists that is to say that reporters stopped calling them because they kept saying, look, this is problematic the way that you're reporting this. There is no such thing as a crack mom. There is no such thing as a crack baby. We can tell you about the maternal fetal interface and we can tell you about the harms of tobacco. We can tell you about the harms associated with alcohol. And we can, we've can. we measured this across any number of drugs and we can give you ideas about how these things Bear out. But this targeting of Black women and crystallized cocaine, it just simply doesn't bear out with the data. They were ignored. Years later, the Journal of the American Medical Association and the New England Journal of Medicine apologized. They said that they published articles that they shouldn't have. They used terminology that they shouldn't have. Years later, the New York Times also issued an apology first on video, then later on in print saying that they too were swept up in the hysteria, that none of it, you know, bore out. None of it, none of this, you know, was, was accurate. And so it's really important that we understand those histories because they help us to put these issues in context for today.
1: Yeah. And I think that's really important, um, especially understanding, you know, the over-incarceration of poor and black women, Um, especially for non-violent crimes. Um, And so can you just pick up on the point you mentioned earlier, you know, this idea of incarceration as opposed to rehabilitation, and then once a woman is in the prison system, how parental rights are terminated um, upon incarceration and also the impact on their children?
2: Yes. Well, so one, there were a number of collateral outgrowths of the U.S turning its attention in this kind of way uh, to incarceration, to the drug war, and also it's important to note its attacks on welfare. Black women and poor women became a perfect scapegoat, such as if we're having significant deficits, it's not because of being engaged in unnecessary wars. It's not related to Um, the kinds of subsidies that were being provided to major uh, corporations and bailing them out or any number of things. It had to be because there were poor women becoming pregnant. It's very interesting, this rhetoric of the welfare queen that emerged in the 1980s and emerged in political talks that were essentially racial dog whistles, right? So that is to say that It was a perfect storm and gathered in such a way that would appeal to certain audiences that would help them to justify their lives. If, in fact, they were laid off from their jobs, if they couldn't afford a second car, if they weren't able to keep up with their own bills, Well, this welfare queen helped to justify why their lives were hard, because clearly while the government wasn't doing much for them, it appeared that the government was doing too much for these women, just sucking up resources. Of course, that was stereotypic, stigmatic, and also untrue, right? So poor women weren't the cause of economic hardships felt by broad scale Americans through the 1980s and 90s, but they became a perfect scapegoat for that in the United States. And so there were politicians who then used that um, and used that in combination with the drug war and also with the uh, kind of rise of mass incarceration. And so somehow it seemed satisfying to people that there was just this greater sense of policing. This policing helped people to make sense of their own lives when in fact it's actually uh, been quite demeaning for us as a nation. The United States incarcerates more people than any other country uh, in the world. Uh, The United States makes up only about 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's incarcerated persons are in the United States. The United States also incarcerates more women than any other country in the world. It incarcerates more women than Russia, China, India, and Thailand combined. You can toss in Mexico too. So this fever for incarceration has satisfied in some ways a couple of things. One, people making sense of their own lives, but two, it's also meant that women continue to be a target and it impedes women's ability to be able to be full participatory citizens in the United States women get targeted in ways that men simply do not. And they get targeted in ways where it's actually very difficult for the state to actually prove their case. So for example, in cases where a woman has a miscarriage or stillbirth, certainly the criminal law should not be involved in her pregnancy. The criminal law shouldn't be involved in women's pregnancies at all. But to the extent that the criminal law has been involved, it's been suggested that if this woman has disclosed That she fell down steps, as in one case, which didn't lead to a miscarriage, but she was arrested anyway because she told her medical providers she slipped down the steps. Medical providers saw this and police as an attempt at an abortion, right? Or in other cases where a woman might have a miscarriage. Well, here's the thing. Just simply being poor means that there are tremendous risks to a pregnancy, even if a person hasn't smoked marijuana during her pregnancy or used methamphetamine or something like that. For example, what we do know is that the majority of poor people of color in the United States live near toxic sites. If you're a poor woman and you're working in agriculture, you're working in pesticides. If you're a poor woman living in Flint, Michigan, you're probably exposed to the high, very high levels of lead in your water. These are things that cause miscarriages and can cause stillbirth. But nobody's targeting corporations. Nobody's going after the state saying, why are you not cleaning up these spaces and making sure that people have clean air and clean water? Because when these women are having miscarriages and stillbirths, it's far more likely that the environmental conditions under which they live and work are those things that are interfering with their pregnancies. But there, you, you won't find a prosecutor or a lawmaker making an intervention in this way. But you see across the United States, these interventions against women because of a miscarriage or a stillbirth.
1: Yeah, you, it really does seem to be a sort of fever of an incarceration now. And in a later section of the book, you write um, th- it seems to be almost part of like official state policy that it uh, extends even beyond the borders. It, it was just um, it was so shocking and so surprising. Um, so, for example, you write about how American policies with regards to limiting access to abortion actually extends to its foreign policies as well, especially, yeah. <laughs> especially yeah, in terms of how aid is distributed. I just, I just was. In shock. I can you explain this a little bit to the listeners,
2: please? Yes. So so many of these things operate in plain sight, but also in shadows, right? So yes, US Supreme Court eugenics, 1927. You could look up any Supreme Court case and yet invisible because it's just the things that people wouldn't believe. So in 1980, Ronald Reagan signed into law a policy called the Mexico City. Uh, policy and agreement. And what it relates to um, happens to be what we call a gag rule. That is, a country that's receiving U.S. aid is then not able to utilize that aid for reproductive health care services, such as abortions. But it goes beyond that because it is also that people who Um, would otherwise nurses or doctors want to inform a patient about abortion being a healthy option, such as right now you're having a miscarriage that could cause you death. You need to terminate this. They can't say that. That's the global gag rule. If you take our money, then you can't talk about abortion. You can't mention it in the clinical setting. You can't refer a person to have an abortion. You can't inform a person about the benefits Of having the abortion. And we see this as really a bit of a dog whistle as well, because in some of those states, then those countries where there is US aid that's received, then in those countries, they may be more uh, hyper vigilant about policing women, given the signals that they've received from the United States. And so you have instances of a couple of things happening. You have women in various countries being uh, arrested for their miscarriages now and for their stillbirth. And you also see something else that's deeply uh, problematic, which is little girls uh, being raped and then being pregnant at 10 or 11, being forced to carry those pregnancies to term, right? The senses don't rock the boat. But even before Ronald Reagan, there is a senator, Senator Jesse Helms, a notorious homophobe, racist, sexist, by his own accord. If you just look up his record of the kinds of things that he said publicly, I mean, such a homophobe that during the AIDS crisis in the United States, he was very explicit about believing that people who are gay Uh, were doomed by God and that this was a purposeful uh, disease, really, really awful person in every way, you know, unedited in his uh, opinions about women, about Black people, about lesbian women and gay men. But this senator proposed the first uh, iteration from the United States, the same year in which the Supreme Court Uh, in Roe v. Wade decriminalized abortion and then basically made it a right for women, this is the same year that the Helms Amendment is proposed and adopted. And it is a vehicle by which, um, again, the U.S. providing aid abroad is able to condition reproductive health care associated with the aid abroad you take our money we get to tell you what we think about how you should control women in your country and their reproductive health
1: yeah um it's it the mind honestly the mind boggles it's just um it's
2: it's hard to believe almost um and well, Jane, so I should tell you, Jane, yeah. connected with that, what was so pernicious about Senator Helms is that Senator Helms. So he proposes this amendment, and Nixon was opposed to it. There were others who were opposed to it. They thought, well, gee, this is strange. Roe v. Wade um, has just, you know, been decided. This makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, but they move along with it because otherwise they be- they don't want to stall being able to sign off on this foreign aid. But what's so interesting and pernicious about Helms is that after he lines up the votes for this amendment to be enacted, he doesn't vote for it because he didn't support aid to begin with. He doesn't even support the aid package, right? I mean, it, it's that level of perniciousness that ends up being embedded in US foreign policy.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, And now just bringing it back to domestic policy and you know it would almost be a remiss I think, not to mention um, what's happened what the situation was like before 2016 when Donald Trump before he was president and what's happened since. I, I just think um, it would be really interesting to hear how the legal framework and the political and social situation has changed for women and pregnancy just you know leading up into the election.
2: Well, it's important to note that between 2010 and 2013, at the rise of the Tea Party, which came about in direct opposition to Barack Obama, that uh, group, that element in US politics was quite successful in becoming elected, using, again, dog whistle, uh, race baiting policies and practices to suppress voting, be, you know, sort of anti-environmentalism and so forth. But it was also Uh, anti-reproductive rights. So between 2010 and 2013, across these various states where the Tea Party swept into office, they began pushing through legislation and proposing legislation that upends um, things such as not only abortion rights, but as well sex education in schools, access to contraception, things such as that. In fact, there are more laws that are proposed and enacted during that brief period of time than in the prior 30 years combined. They get very busy. They're very aggressive. And it's important to note that they were also aggressive on voter suppression too, creating all sorts of laws that suppress people's right to vote and redrawing districts and so forth. That was the lay of the land pre-2016. So troubling for sure. And it was something that people really needed to be on alert about because it was problematic that was happening in states. Well, what's happened now is that since the 2016 election, Donald Trump has normalized the attack on democratic norms and constitutional values in the United States. And that is to say he's weaponized religion in ways that before this very strong separation of church and state uh, now is not so strong in terms of separation. In fact, through conscious clauses, which doctors could previously use if they did not want to provide a patient an abortion, well, now that's been furthered to extend beyond doctors, and it's now not just religious objections. People can have moral objections in denying uh, care to women or LGBTQ persons. Donald Trump has intensified internationally the barriers uh, to reproductive health and rights, and has withdrawn U.S. funding from such certain programs that provided family planning internationally. The Trump administration has, um, in other ways, been a provided critical pushback. Against uh, transgender people, banning them from the military, claiming that they pose a risk of safety to the United States and to the military. And I share these various other spaces because it's important to understand them as a whole and that these are not just matters of abortion, but they, the issues that affect the broad scale. Of women's lives are important, and not just heterosexual women, but also gay women and transgender women as well. Uh, this administration has shown an unfettered attack on the dignity and the well being of these women, not just within the reproductive space, but also within the space of education, employment, in the military, and so much more. And that's really important to take note and account of.
1: And it's in this context you um you make a case for a a reproductive justice bill of rights. Can you explain yes. this a little bit? Yes. It, yes.
2: Well, was- the the vulnerability of of women's reproductive rights, of people's reproductive rights, but the men don't have to worry about these things. It's it's women who become the targets and transgender people who are becoming the targets. And so if we are to lift up the dignity, the equality, the autonomy, the privacy of women and to do that in a way that is meaningful and robust then perhaps what we should have is a bill of rights that explicitly does so because the one of the key spaces where women's dignity happens to be undermined threatened and harmed by the state happens to be in the reproductive space and it's from a to z It's whether she wants to carry a pregnancy to term but through eugenics and eugenics-like practices and policies is denied the opportunity to do so. If she wants to terminate a pregnancy, which is very sensible because a person is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by terminating it. So abortion, not only is it a legal right, it actually is a medical right in that context. Um, And so even that then comes under attack. We've got sex education in schools under attack, and yet children in the United States lead the developed world in terms of sexually transmitted diseases and pregnancies. And so if you go down the list of the areas in which these attacks actually affect people's civil liberties and they affect people's health, then really there's urgent need for ensuring and buttressing the rights in these spaces and paying close attention that these are not just protections that are needed for heterosexual women, but also for LGBTQ communities as well.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, the situation and all the cases that you give, there's so many just harrowing example after example after example, and it certainly sounds like we definitely need you know, we need more attention. We need more research. And this does sound like a solution that would at least help somewhat, even if it doesn't solve all well, the problems. And it,
2: and it would help the doctors too. So one of the problems that relates to, and you brought this up with doctors being deputized in these spaces is that for the patient, you're completely unaware that your doctor is wearing a double hat. In any other instance, when the police are targeting you, they have to disclose that they are targeting you. And they have to disclose, um, they have to provide, you know, you with your Miranda rights. That means just, you know, letting a person know anything that they say or do may be used against them later on in criminal litigation, et cetera, right? They have a right to an attorney, right? They're they're the things that are mandatory for police to disclose. Well, it's interesting in this bypass and go around through the medical sphere is that nothing's being disclosed to these women. They're not informed that anything that they share with their medical provider could be used against them later on in a court of law. They're not informed that before coming to see me, you might want to see a lawyer instead or any of those things. And so um, a bill of rights in this space is urgent and really necessary.
1: Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Um, Michelle, I've taken up a lot of your time, but before you go, can you share with our listeners what you're working on now? Well,
2: thank you for that. So at this time, I'm working on issues that relate in this space and also that take us back to the time of slavery in the United States. So I have a book that I'm working on involving the 13th Amendment so that we can take a clear look to see about the ways in which the uh, enterprise of slavery continued after 1865 The 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery in the United States, actually has a punishment clause. And so it's a bit of a loophole because that loophole says that slavery may continue against a person so long as he or she is convicted of a crime. And we've been talking about that over Mm. this past hour.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like more essential work that we really need at the moment um, in the landscape that we're living in um so true yeah (laughs) michelle um thank you so much today her book uh policing the womb invisible woman and the criminalization of motherhood is riveting i honestly i couldn't put it down it it was eye-opening it was engaging and it honestly it was harrowing but it's so essential it's you know it's something everyone really should read i've been speaking with oh thank you it was great um I've been speaking with Michelle Goodwin and I'm Jane Richards. Uh, Michelle's new book was Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. It was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Michelle, thank you for your time.
2: Thank you for having me on your show.
1: You've been listening to The New Books in Law, a channel on The New Books Network.